Thank you for tuning in to another edition of Heartland History, the podcast of the Midwestern History Association. And now here's your host, John Lauk. Welcome to another edition of Heartland History. I'm John Lauk, your host. Today we are joined by Michael Lansing, a professor of history at Augsburg College in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Uh, Michael and I are chatting today at the meeting of the Northern Great Plains History Conference, which is being held this year at St. Cloud State University in St. Cloud, Minnesota. Michael and I just participated in a panel discussion about Midwestern politics and more generally the state of political history in the United States. Um, Michael, do you have any thoughts about the recent debates about the state of uh, political history, and in particular, the state of Midwestern political history? Yeah, thanks very much, and thanks for having me on the podcast. Um, I, I would say that I think the, the reports of the death of public history are a bit overblown or exaggerated. I, th- I think, in fact, Lots of different kinds of people are engaging in political history, and it is true, um, as some of the people who have been raising this question just in the last couple of months here in August and September of 2016, they've been thinking that, in fact, you know, public history is dead, and there aren't many people teaching political history in our universities and colleges, and you know, we don't see as many books and articles or as much scholarly energy around these questions. I think, in fact, you do, but what we're seeing is the kind of um, a kind of shift in terms of what counts as political history. Uh, So uh, political history is not necessarily just about elections and candidates anymore. Um, And I think that's an important shift. And what's interesting is that while it's social and cultural historians that are driving that shift and engaging with political questions from a wide range of spaces, like intellectual history or religious history or women's history or the history of gender and sexuality, uh, in fact, those social and cultural historians were not the ones who led the way in expanding what political history could be. I think it was the body of scholarship created um, by mostly by social scientists, by sociologists and political scientists in the 1990s and the early 2000s um, in what was called American Political Development, or APD. It even had an acronym, which historians, of course, are a little freaked out by, but the social scientists, they like the acronyms. And the literature in American Political Development really started connecting elections and candidates to questions around institutions and long-standing change, change over decades instead of kind of micro-studies of particular elections or particular electoral movements or moments. So uh, I think it's social and cultural historians are re-engaging political history, and they're doing so with, whether they know it or not, the weight of this American political development literature at their disposal. And that has automatically expanded the range of what's possible when you engage in a political history topic. And then, of course, they're bringing social history and cultural history to bear. So I think it's a really exciting time for political history. Um, And I think political history used to be something that, you know, you'd have a session at a conference, and interesting people would show up, people that you wouldn't expect, because it turned out politics was kind of important. And lots of academics are interested in politics, even if they do work in these other fields. Um, and, and now I think we're seeing that reflected in uh, people who are in their 20s and 30s and 40s, uh, people who grew up in the 80s and 90s and are really interested in wondering why our politics looks the way it does in 2016. In fact, uh, the, the, the session we were just a part of 
a big component of it was um, the story of George McGovern, who was the longtime senator from South Dakota, who had a PhD in history from Northwestern University. And uh, one of the historians uh, at our panel had actually done an analysis of all the books that George McGovern had read back in the day. And also made the point that George McGovern was almost a lifelong historian. He was in the final two for a job at the University of Iowa in 1951. And uh, unfortunately for George at the time, Samuel Hayes, the great historian who went on to Pittsburgh and other places and wrote many great books, Samuel Hayes got the job at the University of Iowa instead of George McGovern. And that, of course, changed the course of American political history. So let's talk a little bit about the panel we were just in. A couple of the papers were about Minnesota and Minnesota politics, and uh, one of them actually focuses on the history of gay bookstores in Minneapolis. And this topic will, or the author of that uh, piece we heard today, will actually be featured on the cover of the upcoming issue of Middle West Review. And as I understand it, uh, you worked very closely with this author. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. I, can, I, can I name the author? Yeah, of course. Yeah, so uh, Kevin Ehrman Solberg is the author of this piece, and it's on pornographic bookstores and how these pornographic bookstores became a important space uh, for men who engaged in homosexual activities to meet each other and to engage in those activities. And in the early 80s in Minneapolis, those pornographic bookstores became very controversial. Indeed, Minneapolis became the site of a national debate between feminists and, uh, and liberals and conservatives around the question of pornography. And so uh, municipal ordinances, there were attempts to, to change the laws in Minneapolis to, to get rid of porn. And um, in fact, those debates about porn, which scholars have been studying for a long time, in intersected with the experiences of men who identified as gay, or in some cases, men who didn't identify as gay but engaged in homosexual activity. And there were uh, intense police raids and kind of a, a big crackdown on these gay men. And here's an example of a great story that's actually connected to politics because eventually this bubbled up as a real debate in Minnesota's Democratic Farm and Labor Party. Uh, Minneapolis, of course, was a stronghold of the Minnesota DFL in the 1980s, and because this became such a public debate over what to do with these pornographic bookstores and what to do with this police crackdown of gay men who were meeting at these pornographic bookstores, uh, eventually it, it, it showed the power of gay men in the DFL to affect change within that party. So it's a perfect example of how um, questions coming out of social history can relate to and in fact not only encourage more and better political history, but in fact what political history has to um, has to offer social history, that political history can shed light on certain types of results and dynamics. Uh, when you take elections and candidates seriously, and when you put that alongside the work that social historians do. So this piece that you're talking about is a perfect example of that. And I think it also points to the rich possibilities for more careful social and political history and working at those intersections when we look at the Middle West. If you're just joining us, I am talking with Michael Lansing, a professor of history at Augsburg College in Minneapolis. And if you hear the muted screams in the background, that's because we are taping this at a hotel in St. Cloud, Minnesota. Uh, we are 
at the Northern Great Plains History Conference, but this hotel has a large pool, and we are very close to the pool, so that explains the uh, yelling children in the background. Michael, could you tell us a little bit about the Historopolis project? I don't know if I'm saying that correctly. Historiopolis. Historiopolis. Can you tell us about that and your involvement in it? Sure. This is a project that's currently located at Augsburg College in Minneapolis, which is my home institution. It's a project that's um, uh, sponsored by the Department of History there, and it features a, a colleague who serves as a scholar in residence in my department, a woman named Kirsten Delgard. Kirsten is a... Uh, trained as a historian of women and gender. Um, she holds a PhD from Duke University. Um, she never felt at home in a traditional academic history context. And so uh, when she moved back to her hometown of Minneapolis a few years ago, she decided that she wanted to work as a historian with the broader public. And of course, that made her think of the work that she would do as public history. But it turns out there was more to it than that. Because uh, I think many of us who do work in the upper Midwest in particular feel like Minneapolis hasn't gotten a lot of attention from historians. And that's not, a, that's not to um, put down any group of historians or anything. In fact, I think this is true of much of the work uh, that needs to be done on the Midwest in general. Um, we have all these great studies of cities around the country. We don't have that many great studies in Minneapolis done in the last 15 or 20 years. And I think that uh, Kirsten noted that lacuna, and she's interested in doing work in Minneapolis history. She's actually uh, right now, working on a book about the history of race in Minneapolis in the late 19th and 20th century. It's going to be a fantastic book. But she didn't want to just write a book for academic historians and leave it at that. She wanted to engage Minneapolis's uh, residents in broader conversations that would be fueled by and understood, or rooted in at least, um, history. And creating public conversations so that uh, we could think more broadly about history could be used to affect public debates about pressing questions that the city faces. And as an undergraduate under, excuse me, as an undergraduate institution, we were really excited about the opportunity to have our students work with her on these particular kinds of public conversations that are rooted in careful historical research and uh, using digital uh, venues to explore those possibilities related to the broader public. I'm really glad to hear that about uh, your work on, or Kristen's work on um, Minneapolis. One of the things, one of the great gaps in Midwestern history, and Midwestern urban history in particular, is uh, the smaller cities of the Midwest. It seems like 90% of the books written about urban areas in the Midwest are about Chicago and Detroit, which are obviously very important cities, but you rarely see any serious, in-depth historical work on Des Moines or Omaha or Indianapolis. So I'm very glad to hear about this project. Michael, I want to ask you about your involvement with the upcoming uh, Western History Association Conference, which will be held in your home territory um, down in St. Paul in October of 2016. Can you tell me about uh, some of your work for that conference and some of the Midwestern angles to the conference? Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, the Western History Association has always um, at least tried to be a home to historians who study the broader North American West, which can be defined in lots of different kinds of ways. And of course, one of the ways it can be defined is as 
the, the Midwestern frontier or the Midwest more broadly. And I think the, the ways in which the Western History Association has um, accepted uh, Midwestern projects and intellectual work has ebbed and flowed over the years. Um, I know that some, as someone whose work is sometimes at the intersection of those regions, that uh, there have been moments where I felt very much at home and other moments where I felt a little less at home. People were friendly, of course, but uh, maybe the, the trend in the historiography wasn't headed in that direction in that particular subfield. Uh, I think the Western History Association is being especially thoughtful this year and working hard to make sure that Western historians feel uh, accepted, comfortable, excited to be there. I know that, for instance, John, you were on the program committee. I think that was an intentional move. Our, the president of the Western History Association this year is John McFerger, who, of course, has been an important historian of the Midwest. Um, even if he hasn't always defined himself that way, he's always had this broader vision. Uh, William Cronin at the University of Wisconsin has always been arguing for as long as I can remember that the Western History Association needs to make a home for the, the Middle West. And uh, we're excited that the Western History Association meetings are in St. Paul this year. And so uh, as a co-chair of the Local Arrangements Committee, uh, working alongside my colleague Annette Atkins, who's emeritus at St. John's University and the College of St. Benedict up here, just outside of St. Cloud, um, we've been working on kind of putting a Midwestern cast on the Western experience and thinking about tours that highlight particularly Midwestern experiences that are also going to be something that I think Western historians can relate to. So for instance, Minnesota is Indian country in the same way that so many other parts of the West are. And so we have a tour of the Native American sites in the Twin Cities that um, conference course will be able to enjoy. We have a, a tour of the Mississippi River uh, led by John Anfinson, who's an environmental historian who literally wrote the book on the environmental history of the Upper Mississippi, and he happens to be the superintendent of the Mississippi National River um, Recreation Area. So he works for the National Park Service. So he's got this great kind of vantage point as a public historian with one foot in the world of the academy and writing traditional books and also then working with the public every day in a governmental agency. And he's providing a tour that will lay out some themes about Indian-white relations and developments and environmental change that, once again, will be familiar to Western historians but really highlight Midwestern stories. Yes, it's uh, it's been a pleasure working with the Western History Association president, Johnny Farragher, who does have some claim to some Midwestern roots. You mentioned uh, some of the work he's done. His famous book, Sugar Creek, was set in Illinois. And also, just a side note for any South Dakota listeners out there, Johnny's father was from Watertown, South Dakota, and uh, was that he was very conscious of his roots back in Watertown. And I think Johnny's father was one of the many people in the Dakotas who decamped during the Great Depression and moved to moved to California. But Johnny's been very interested in this idea of expanding Western history to be sure to include what we now consider the Midwest. And uh, as a result, we have 10 panels or so at the Western History Association uh, that will focus on the Midwest. So that is uh, that is great news. I also wanted to talk to you, Michael, about your new book from the University of Chicago Press. Uh, your book is a history, long overdue, of the Nonpartisan League. Can you tell listeners who may not be familiar with that term or that organization uh, about the thrust of your book? Sure. Um, the Nonpartisan League was a 
political organization created by farmers in the northern grasslands in the 19-teens and 1920s. Um, it took on the name Nonpartisan League because first, it was not a party, so it was literally nonpartisan. And it was a league because it wasn't organized the way a party is, it was a membership-based organization. And it was focused less on candidates and more on a platform. Um, I argue in the book that this whole approach is a relative innovation and one that's too often been overlooked because it was invented by people who live in a part of the world that I think uh, elites on both coasts imagine as flyover country. Um, I think if this, if this movement had emerged in places that usually get more attention, like California or uh, the Northeast, this story would be in a lot of the kind of standard US history textbooks. It'd be part of our traditional narrative. But as it is, most people haven't heard of it. The Nonpartisan League was born in North Dakota in 1915. It grew out of cooperative movements and uh, really grew out of already organized farm organizations that were engaged in the wheat marketplace, which was centered here in Minnesota and Minneapolis. And so the wheat growing region of the Northern Plains, which included Western Minnesota and large portions of South Dakota and North Dakota and Eastern Montana, was mostly engaged in the monoculture cultivation of wheat. And that wheat funneled here to Minneapolis, where of course the flour milling industry was king. It was the center of the world's flour milling industry from the 1880s into the early 1920s. And that got those farmers involved in an economic relationship that was tilted towards the big companies in Minneapolis. And so these farmers were working to figure out how to create equity in the marketplace, equity in the marketplace that they worked in. Um, the term that I use in the book is that they were looking for accumulation without concentration. In other words, they were committed to capitalism. They were interested in growing commodities for sale in a market to support their families in a middle-class lifestyle. But they greatly resented the concentration of money and power that had emerged in Minneapolis and controlled the transportation interests that took their grain to market and brought them the goods that they might buy at the store in the local town. Um, they also greatly resented the ways in which their grain was graded at grain elevators, which is why they had been engaged in this cooperative movement. As the Minneapolis milling interests continued to reject their efforts to create some kind of equity in the marketplace, um, these farmers in North Dakota decided to go into electoral politics they created this membership-based organization, the Nonpartisan League, and they took over North Dakota state government in 1916. As it turned out, it was a, a model for politics that appealed not only to wheat farmers, but to farmers in other parts of the country as well. Before it was over, there were farmers in 13 different states and even two Canadian provinces that adopted this model and brought it into electoral politics, working at the state level, and ultimately trying to create state-owned industries, state-owned industries in North Dakota, the state-owned industries included the creation of a state-owned flour mill, uh, which still makes flour. It's actually the only flour I let in my house. It's Dakota-made flour. Um, a state-owned grain elevator and a state bank, all three of which are in operation in the state of North Dakota. And uh, even though it's always been understood as a North Dakota or a North Dakota and Minnesota story, it's a story that touches on lots of other states in the Middle West, and it touches on states outside the Middle West, especially in the Northern Rockies and in the Southern Plains. And I think that was really important to share that story in the book because I wanted to show that the Midwest is not significant on its own, but also the way it can influence other spaces and other places and people in other places. Um, and the Nonpartisan League is a perfect example of that. I noticed, Michael, that you used the phrase northern grasslands when you were describing the area of operation of the NPL. Uh, we have a couple of friends, of course, uh, Lori Lalum and 
Molly Rosam, who are very interested in this whole question of the grasslands. Is it their influence that has caused you to think of it this way? Because the more traditional way of discussing it would be to call it the Northern Plains. That's a great question, and you're, you're on to something here. Uh, Molly Rosam is the one that I think coined the term Northern Grasslands, and we're going to see that in her forthcoming book-length work, which is going to be just fantastic. I can't wait for that book to come out on uh, women and memoir and placemaking and what she calls the Northern Grasslands. And uh, Molly's convinced me to use that term because I think it's, it's more inclusive in terms of understanding these spaces. There's always this hard divide between tall grass prairie and short grass plains. And I don't think that captures the reality of life on the ground for people um, in the 19th and 20th century, and even the 21st century for that matter, especially in the upper Midwest. You know, the differences between the lives of people in eastern South Dakota and southwestern Minnesota simply aren't that great, even though those folks in eastern South Dakota are a little closer to the short grass plains. The term northern grasslands encompasses this broader sense of place, this prairie plains orientation. Um, and I think in some ways can be really useful for understanding certain types of spatial relationships that have shaped historical dynamics in the region. You mentioned in your book about the NPL the fights between farmers out on the plains or the grasslands and the large wheat millers in Minneapolis. And I think you've talked other places about the importance of wheat and uh, food production more generally in the Twin Cities. I think you're working on a project now about the food history of the Twin Cities. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. I just started research this summer on this book, and I'm really excited about it. Um, I think it grew out of in many ways, it grew out of the work that I did on the Nonpartisan League. On the one hand, the Nonpartisan League book, I'm trying to understand the political economy um, that farmers are working in and then the ways in which they create a, a small d democratic movement to, to transform that political economy to make it more fair, ultimately. Um, and that got me interested in what was really going on in the milling industry in Minneapolis. And so what I'm working on now is a book that I've titled The Cradle of Carbohydrates. Minneapolis and the making of the world's food, because this is another example of how the Midwest is shaping things, not just across the country, but around the world by the beginning of the 21st century. And if you look at Minneapolis, what flour milling did in the 1880s and 1890s to make Minneapolis important and powerful in a regional center um, was something that was in deep trouble by the 1920s as a project. The milling companies were facing reduced consumer demand. Uh, they were struggling with agricultural depression in the wheat-growing regions. They had had this political dissent that the Nonpartisan League represented, a real challenge to their power. You no longer needed the power of falling water to power a flour mill, and so that monopoly on energy, literally, that the Minneapolis millers had because of St. Anthony Falls, the largest waterfall on the Mississippi, no longer was something that helped them out. Now it was something that was tethering them to an old way of doing things. And so these um, flour milling companies become food-making companies. You see that most clearly in the 1920s when the Washburn Crosby Company, one of the most important and largest milling concerns in Minneapolis, um, integrates horizontally with other smaller flour millers in different parts of the United States and becomes General Mills. And uh, today, in the 21st century, General Mills is the largest producer of packaged food in the world. So connecting that story, we know something about the flour milling industry in Minneapolis in the late 19th and early 20th century. 
Um, but we don't know how it connects to what the food industry looks like today. Or, for instance, uh, commodities trading. Minneapolis, of course, became an important grain trading market. And now we have Cargill, the largest privately held company in America, that is not just trading commodities in the United States, it's trading commodities around the world. And, of course, it's processing those commodities as value-added um, products that they can create. And some of those value-added products, like syrups and oils, are actually the things that get used to make the carbohydrate-based products of a company like General Mills shelf-stable. So what I'm interested in doing is writing an environmental and urban history of the food industry in Minneapolis and understanding the relationship um, of how the food industry transformed the urban space that became Minneapolis, how it transformed the rural areas around Minneapolis. I think there's a really important story to be told about how wheat monoculture gets shifted to a corn and bean and alternating years monoculture, and that's driven by the decision-making and innovation and uh, other kinds of changes that the food companies are creating here in Minneapolis. This is going to be a great book. We very much look forward to uh, reading it down the road. It reminds me of the book that Kristen Hoganson is working on now, which is sort of a food history uh, based in southern Illinois around Urbana-Champaign and trying to explain how Urbana-Champaign and the surrounding economy connects to the global economy so doesn't just connect to it it shapes it and uh you know i was in nicaragua with augsburg students in january on a travel seminar and uh january of this year and we were driving down this road in rural nicaragua this is the second poorest nation in the western hemisphere and i saw a cargo sign you know and i was like oh my gosh here's minnesota here you know just on the equator, in this a whole other part of the world. I thought the Sandinistas got rid of Cargill. Oh, no, no. They've, they've embraced Cargill in the last 10 years, but that's another story for another day. Since we're in uh, north-central Minnesota, Michael, and we're very close to Sauk Center, I wanted to ask you about uh, something I had heard about earlier in the week. Sauk Center is the birthplace, of course, to Sinclair Lewis, who went on to become a very famous author and was the first American to win the Nobel Prize for Literature, and is, of course, most famous for his book, Main Street, depicting small Midwestern towns. But I read in the Star Tribune this week that they are closing down the Sinclair Lewis Interpretive Center in Sauk Center. Uh, and do you have any inside uh, information on what's happening there? I just think there's no money in the community to support the center, and the real estate seems to be so valuable that the um, business leaders of the city think it could be used for something else. I think, I think it's a real tragedy. Um, and in fact, it represents a broader experience, um, something that, John, you've done a lot of work on, which is the kind of forgetting of the significance of the Midwest in the actual region itself. So um, I had not read Sinclair Lewis until I went to college, and I had a professor say, well, you're from Minnesota, so you've read Sinclair Lewis. And I was, no, no, I hadn't. And of course, I, he's like, you have to read Babbitt. So of course, I read Babbitt, and that led me to Main Street and to uh, Aerosmith and to lots of other great books by Sinclair Lewis. And then I started reading Fitzgerald, and even though I had grown up in a suburb of St. Paul, I'm, suddenly there I am, and I'm reading Fitzgerald for the first time in college. And I was in college on the East Coast. so. Um, I, th I think there's a broader trend here, and I think it's a problematic one. I was just working in Main Street again because I uh, mentioned Sinclair Lewis in the book on the Nonpartisan League. The Nonpartisan League actually figures into the plot of that story. And the ways in which Sinclair Lewis captures the kind of complicated nature of small town versus uh, rural farmers, that kind of set of relationships, 
um, along with all the other things that the book is already known for. Uh, it's, it's really great. And uh, I, I think there's a certain level of pride that has to be taken when we talk about Sinclair Lewis or F. Scott Fitzgerald. Um, and we, we have to nurture that pride, not just in their achievements, but in their artistic success. Um, Lewis and Fitzgerald, in particular, created these incredibly significant contributions to not just American literature, but world literature. And many times they were writing about experiences that came right here out of the, the Middle West. I was actually in a seminar at the Newberry Library a few years ago, and there was a colleague working on Midwestern uh, literary culture. And this person claimed that uh, both Lewis and Fitzgerald could be claimed by Chicago. And I immediately had this kind of this issue. And I, I was civil and professional, but I voiced my concern about that claim. And I said, you know, I live in the city of St. Paul, because at the time I lived in St. Paul. And we have a statue of Fitzgerald downtown. And I can walk to the place where he was born. You, you know, he's ours. So there's a sense of uh, place and a sense of pride in place that I think Sinclair Lewis offers up and Fitzgerald offers up. I think we, frankly, would have forgotten about Fitzgerald if it weren't for Garrison Keillor and his work to kind of memorialize Fitzgerald in these ways. The same for Sinclair Lewis. It doesn't help that Lewis was such a prickly character, or that he had his own very complicated relationship with the with his home region. But nonetheless, it's a it's a tragedy that the center's closing. We've been visiting with Michael Lansing, a professor of history at Augsburg College in the Twin Cities of Minnesota. This is Heartland History. I'm your host, John Lauk. Please join us for another episode in coming weeks. Thank you, Michael, for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me on. Thank you again for tuning in to Heartland History. If you would like more information about the Midwestern History Association, visit us at midwesternhistory.com. You'll have access to information about memberships, news about upcoming conferences, calls for papers, and panel proposals related to Midwestern history. You might also be interested in subscribing to the print journal Middle West Review or reading our online journal, Studies in Midwestern History. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, and you can find us on Facebook. Until next time.